Like you said, I'm Dan. Thanks for having me. Uh, this turnout is crazy for an event with no food or limited food, so I appreciate that. Um, I just kind of wanted an hour off work, and now it's this whole thing. Um, so here I am. Um, now, like she said, I clerk um, for a judge on the Fourth Circuit who's here in Charlottesville. So if you have any clerking questions, feel free to ask me. Uh, my contact info is up there. It's just my email in my terrible handwriting. It's supposed to be DJR4MD, but I'll raise that at the end. Um, so any questions at all, clerking, otherwise, this presentation, feel free to send them along. Um, in terms of today, I just want to... Uh, outline a couple objectives for the day. The first is to just introduce you all to what outlining is. Um, I think law school has a tendency of putting scary labels on things that are very familiar, and then we all freak out by saying we don't know what that is. Um, I think blue booking is a good example of this. Uh, cold calls are a good example of this. It's just getting a question in class. We've all done that, but you call it cold calls, and all of a sudden it's very uh, scary and terrible. I think outlining is like that, in that um, it's taken on this kind of law school phraseology to it, but really it's just preparing for the test. And I really do say that because it is that general and that basic. All you're really doing is getting your thoughts organized in some way that will help you on the exam. Um, and that looks different for different people. Um, so I want to talk about that a little bit and then also discuss why we all find outlining useful. Um, I know a lot of people have different ways of outlining, but most people in law school do some form of it one way or the other. And I think the reason for that is that it adds some value for them. So I want to talk about that a little bit. And then I also want to talk about how outlining is distinct from some other things you might be doing already for classes, like just taking notes and briefing cases and all that. Um, but important disclaimer, um, a couple things this is not about. Um, one thing it's not about is actual mechanics of taking an exam. Um, Lisa Napier, Kate can attest to, I have a crazy ritual for doing that where I get here like super early. This is not about that. It's not about exam day at all. It's just about what you do between now and exam day. Um, it's also not about any specific content. So if I say something in here that is not what you've heard from Ken Abraham or Alex Johnson, they are clearly right and I am clearly wrong. So I apologize in advance for that. Um, and it's also, today is not about trying to find like a perfect way to organize an outline. There's a lot of different ways to do this. Um, you're gonna hear from your PAs and other friends a lot. They'll send you a lot of examples and material and I think at times it can seem frustrating because the advice might seem contradictory. They might say, oh, I thought it was really helpful to start four weeks out or six weeks out. Um, the lesson I would take from that is don't be frustrated that you're hearing different things. See that as just further evidence that there are a lot of different ways to do this right. Um, just by way of example, I had a friend who would, in the two or three weeks before an exam, he would just gather like six or seven old outlines, read them all cover to cover, and then handwrite his own on like loose paper. And he did phenomenally, because he was still doing some work. Um, another friend did all of it in Excel with like strange tables that all cross-referenced, and that worked for him, and that was great. Um, so there are different ways to do it. I, I think the one common denominator, though, is that you have to be doing the work. Um, I don't think it's very helpful to just take a bunch of outlines that other people did, not think about it in any systemic or organized way, and then think you're ready for the exam just because you read what your PAs gave you. Um, the kind of thing they give you is very, very helpful. It gives you a template, gives you different models to use, um, but you really do have to do the work yourself at some level. Um, so first, uh, just what is an outline? Um, one thing it's not is just your notes from class. So if your notes from class typed up are 150 pages, retyping that 150 pages is not the outline. Um, you want the outline to help you organize your thoughts, and everything in class is gonna come in a pretty linear way. 
So each class is going to cover a different topic. You're going to move from A to B to C to D. And the outline's supposed to help you sort of cross among those things and bring them together. So it shouldn't just be the exact same content that you covered in class, even if it's just condensing that, because often you want to be doing more than just working from the notes and, and what they've already given you. Um, a second thing um, that an outline is not is it's not a reference guide. A lot of the exams here in the law school are open book exams. And I think students are comforted by that a little bit. And they tend to view the outline as just a big encyclopedia of tort law or criminal law that you can just hit control F a lot for. And I don't think your, your goal for the outline should be searching it in real time for every question. Obviously, you know, needing to look up a, a legal rule or a case name or whatever it is, you might need to do that for whatever reason. Um, but I think you should view the outline as a, as a form of preparation, not as a guide for reference. Um, so I, I think it's tough to pin down exactly what the outline is. I think it's helpful to tell you what it isn't. Um, but the one thing it is, is it's something that you're learning while you're making it and that you're building yourself and sort of putting some content into. Even if it's just like my friend who had seven or eight different outlines and then wrote something up himself on paper, that's still added value of him taking it and organizing it himself. So I think there's no way around um, doing the work a little bit. Um, gonna talk about why we outline, but if there's any general questions on any of that, I'm happy to, to pause. I'll leave plenty of time at the end for questions because I know it's a very busy room. I don't want to take the full hour with just me talking. Um, but if there's anything now that jumps out, or at any point, just uh, feel free to raise a hand. So. Cool. Um, I think the reason we outline is that law school is not like other classes where memorization is the key to everything. Um, law school problems and actual problems when you're a lawyer, they don't come in like clean doctrinal forms that come to your office ready to roll. Like clients don't walk in and say, this contract's bad, there was no consideration, or something like they don't do that. Um, they bring you facts from the world and they bring you problems and you have to have the legal tools to bring as a solution. Uh, so outlining is a way to get beyond a kind of test that might be pure multiple choice, which is just, you know, what's the rule of Hadley-Levy-Baxendale or something. Like you, you can do that by just memorizing your notes and outline helps move you beyond a question like that. Um, there's also some problems where the facts will implicate two different lines of doctrine or the facts might make a question that was very clean in class very close. Um, so you all may have seen something called res ipsa loquitur and torts. It's basically a way of proving breach just by circumstantial evidence. None of that really matters, but the, the point is that the cases that you use to explore that idea are pretty obvious. It's like something falls out of a building or a doctor leaves a medical tool in somebody, like crazy stuff. Um, and the facts in the real world might not be that clean cut. And the outline helps you sort of push on the different themes at work and the different facts at work to, uh, to get to a solution. Um, also, there's a lot of different kinds of questions on law school exams, and um, I want to talk about a couple of those. Um, our faculty here at the law school are pretty good about making the tests look a little bit like the real world, in the sense that they have a lot of different kinds of questions. Uh, lawyers do a lot of different kinds of work, and our faculty are good at picking up a lot of those different things. Um, so uh, the first one up there is applying law to fact. That's typically called issue spotting. You've probably heard that, done midterms with that kind of structure. It's a very common way of testing legal skills because it mirrors very closely what happens when somebody walks into your office and says, my contract went bad, here's everything terrible, can you help me? Um, another skill that gets tested a lot is normative arguments. Um, you probably hear these as policy questions. 
Um, often they'll be part of an exam, especially in courses that have a lot of policy-laden content. Um, some faculty really like to push on the different rationales for things in the world, and they like to sort of tease out why the legal rules look the way they do. And those professors will often care that you can, you can make a normative argument. Um, a third thing is providing strategic advice. Um, not all problems in the world uh, come after the problems already, already emerge. So like in a contract situation, a client might ask you, how can I avoid X situation? As opposed to saying, this terrible thing happened to me, can you help? And some law school exams are good about pushing on that and saying, someone wants to avoid liability for this, but still be able to engage in that kind of conduct. Can you help me work this out? Um, and then a final skill that sort of applies to all of these is evaluating the strength of claims. Um, a lot of professors don't care as much that you can identify an issue in, in a fact pattern so much as tell them what it actually means and is it a strong claim or not. Um, so if you just say like, race ipsa loquitur is a way to prove breach and then move on, that's not really doing the work they need. And um, often the outlining will help you figure out how to sort of make arguments about which facts are strongest and analogize to the cases you have. Um, so the one thing about all of these is just memorizing your notes does not get you there for any of this. It can be the first step, it can help to know the cases, help to know the facts, but you can't have somebody walk into your office and say, you know, this contract went south, what are we gonna do? And you just repeat back to them the legal rule that a contract requires consideration. It just doesn't, you know, you have to do a little bit more than that. And um, while that's a first step, it's just not enough. Um, so instead of just reciting facts back to them, um, here are some of the things that you'll have to demonstrate on your exams. A lot of these are gonna look very familiar to you all. Um, you have to know the rules first of all, you have to apply them, you have to put them in context. Um, but these things are much easier said than done. And often when you're in the process of making an outline is when you can tease together a lot of where the gaps in your own knowledge are. Um, and just for those who are typing, I th can we send this around? Cool, yeah, we'll send this around too so you can see. Um, and that, that last one about knowing the rationales for legal rules, that gets back to that idea that a lot of faculty are very curious about why we have the rules we have and might ask you questions that push on that. Um, so if you're sitting in a torts exam and somebody says, who should be liable when a self-driving car gets in an accident? You probably don't have a case that already tells you who should be liable when that happens or it wouldn't be on the exam. What they want you to do is pull from the themes you've studied, the ideas of what tort law is about and what it's trying to do, and bring all those different arguments and those cases to bear on a question that's gonna be new and a little bit different. Uh, so the actual mechanics of building an outline. Um, I just put up here some of the things that will often be in front of you. Um, I liked to just literally have one of those desks upstairs and just have it all physically in front of me to look at. Because um, I, I was like handwritten notes, I would type some stuff, I would have occasional case briefs, things my PAs gave me, the book, all the stuff in front of me. Um, but the point is that you want to bring all of that into a way that actually organizes things and condenses things. So if your outline ends up being 400 pages long because it just repeats everything in your case book, that's probably not going to help you actually break down things and figure out what's going on. Um, so I think the easiest way to actually talk about this is through an example. Um, before we jump into the example, I just want to do, uh, provide just a, a disclaimer that I'm going to talk about negligence a little bit in tort. Once again, anything your professors tell you is better than whatever I'm telling you. I'm just giving this to you as a way to sort of um, introduce you to what's out there for a topic that you all have studied. I, I would guess most of the torts courses have gone through 
breach and negligence a little bit at least. Some of those ideas. I think by this point in the semester, they typically start there and they'll move into other stuff later. So hopefully this is not completely new stuff, but I'll, like I said, it's not, it's not for the actual content. It's more just as an example to, to see how things get organized. Um, cool, so your class may have covered, um, first of all, you may have covered how we conceptualize negligence and what it means. Uh, so that may be things like, you know, does economics matter to negligence? Is it about fairness? Hand formula stuff. Like all those different ways about what are we talking about with negligence. Um, and then you might have done some different legal rules. So if children engage in certain conduct, do we modify the standard for the child? If an old person engages in certain conduct, do we modify it for the old person? Um, you might have done things about statutes. If somebody broke a law or regulation, what does that mean for negligence? Um, you might have looked at custom. Uh, that especially matters in the medical malpractice context, which you may or may not do. Um, and you might have talked about how you prove it. Um, so that's where the race ipsa kind of thing comes into play. Um, so you're going to have in your class, you will have done all these things. And each of them may have been two or three days. The first one may have been like three weeks. And you'll just sort of talk about them in isolation. And, and the professors will often, as they introduce topics, try to fit them in context. And they're very good at this. But a lot of the times your notes, when you pull your notes back out, will be sort of sequential. And they won't really tell you how the thing you did on like the fourth Tuesday of the semester relates to the thing you did on the first Thursday of the semester. So you'll just have this sort of like huge amount of content in front of you. And the goal for the outline is to pull that together in some way that helps you, however works for you, um, but helps you organize those thoughts into some way to actually attack facts on the ground that come in an exam. Um, so one thing you're going to need to know from your outline is what the legal rules are. And that's probably the most basic thing. You sort of have to leave the section on breach and tort knowing that the standard is different if there's a statute or custom matters to medical malpractice or whatever it is. You sort of have to know some of these shorthand rules or at least have them in the outline that are available for you when you need them. Um, but they should also give you the facts that you need to to make the case. So what, what your outline needs to have in terms of facts is not every fact from the case, who was the plaintiff, what was the procedural posture, all of that. What you need to have is the relevant facts for that claim. So something that we were talking about for race ipsa, um, something, you know, what is it, burn v something, where, where like some sandbag or something falls out of a building and like hits a guy. Um, it helps to know that factual situation because if you get a new race ipsa case on an exam that doesn't quite look that clean, it's helpful to say there are more explanations other than negligence unlike burn. Or if it looks just like burn, you can say, okay, this is a situation just like that where it could only be explained by negligent conduct. Um, so the facts matter in the sense of how you're going to use them. Um, so it doesn't help to have every case in your outline have two or three pages of independent facts. But as your professors have helped you pull out what facts really matter to the law, um, it helps to have those in the outline so that you can review them. Um, another thing you want to do is place issues in their context. Um, so in the case that we're talking about here, that might be the difference between what is the standard applicable to this action, like was this breach versus how do I prove it? So was this a breach, did the person violate a statute, is a different kind of question than I'm a plaintiff, how do I meet my burden of showing negligence, I can use race ipsa. So it, one thing you can do at this stage when you're building an outline is put together, if I was attacking facts in the world, what would, what would be the logical progression I would need to do? I'd have to say, all right, what's the standard applicable? How am I going to prove that standard? 
And then as you go through torts, you'll learn all kinds of other elements that come into play too. But within this one element, you can see there's kind of two discrete stages of what you'd have to do as a plaintiff to make out your case. Um, and also what the outline can do too is uh, help you draw on those broader themes. Because often the, the policy question type things that come on law school exams, um, they sort of come out of left field by design. They're sort of things you haven't talked about or thought about and that's sort of the point is to put you on the spot a little bit. And often um, if you're thinking about how the cases you study within each doctrinal box relate to that bigger picture early, um, I think it can be really helpful in the sense of pulling out the relevant themes for policy questions um, down the line. So this is just an example, once again, not for structure, but you might in your section on breach, you might break it into concepts like how did we get here, kind of background and development, and then how do you define it, how do you prove it, and why do we have a rule like that in the first place. So like that, that's sort of just going through what we just talked about. It might come into an outline form in a way like that. Once again, I don't put that there because that's the sacred way of doing breach, but just because that's how the themes we pushed on um, can help you get there. So um, I wanted to get through that example. I know that was a lot to do on negligence. Um, so sorry for those who were like just got out of torts and that feels terrible. I don't think torts is in the afternoon this year, but um, but yeah. So I want to, I want the bulk of the time to be questions you all have um, about different things and ways that can be helpful. But um, once again, here to help. And uh, there's no perfect way to do this, but you do have to do the work yourself. That if I had one message, that would be it. Um, that whatever happens, you have to spend the next you know, whatever number of weeks you think you need or what works for you, actually putting the time in yourself, not just relying on um, stuff that comes in from others. So, cool. Oh, and by the way, in Q&A, I'm happy to answer questions about specific things you've seen. I'm not like not gonna talk about it. I just didn't wanna sort of pitch one way of doing things as sort of the end all be all here. So. Cool. Questions? Yeah. On the last slide you had of an example, is that all you would do? Is that all the detail you use, or would you um, add to each of those bullet points? Oh, yeah. The, sorry. These are meant to be sort of like headings. So the historical approaches one would tell you like that English common law tradition of strict liability, and you'd sort of talk about the cases that elaborate on that. And then the modern standard, you would talk about how did we get to breach and what case sort of announced that, what is the law in modern tort law. And then for each of these sections in defining breach, you're going to have different cases that help push on that and different rules you did in class. So this might end up being four to ten pages of stuff um, once you build it out. I just didn't want to like bog it down with like actual facts, which I don't really remember that well. Sorry. Um, but yeah, these are just sort of the headings and the different ways to organize it. And, and once again, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of ways that you could take this exact same material and spin it and cut it and arrive at different places. Um, I think the important thing is that you are going through that process though. Um, instead of just sort of reading your notes over, reading your PA's outline, um, do sort of struggle with it for a while and say like, is there another way to organize this stuff? Is there another way to cut these things and to, to move them around? Because I think that the more you sort of play with the material yourself, the more you'll notice facts that matter that you might not have seen earlier. Yeah. <laughs> about every topic um, and about all different topics at the same time. And do you have any suggestions for 
suggestions for preparing for a closed book, closed notes, no outside resources? I think I know what we're talking about pretty well. All right. Um, <laughs> no, um, there was a professor I had who I'll leave nameless. I, I took this person for 12 credits, so I clearly like them. Um, but he sort of knows all of the law and teaches it all sort of at once. Um, which can be fun, and it's fun when you were two and three. I was one, I was kind of like, what's going on? Um, but um, I think in classes like that, it's, it's often you'll get a lot, and the reason you're getting a lot is because they want you to see how things relate. So often when a professor is giving you more than you think you need on a topic, it's because they're sort of doing this for you. They're sort of giving you how it fits and what it's about. Um, sometimes they'll just give you a lot of facts because they find them interesting. And um, memorable facts can be really important. So I mean, there, there's an extent to which like the really salient facts of like torts cases often become the easiest thing to analogize to just because you're thinking about them. Or uh, criminal law cases often have this on like mens rea, or like what did the person actually know? What were they thinking? What happened to them? You know, like the, these things start to matter a lot. Um, so a lot of the facts are relevant, but I think often when you think that you have like 10 pages of handwritten notes on one case and you're wondering like why. Um, when you go through it and try to fit it into these different buckets of, of how that case informs different things, you'll be able to sort of isolate the important ones that help to help fill it out. Um, in terms of the closed book thing, I think it's actually kind of a blessing because it's the inverse of relying on the open book thing, which I think is a problem. I think too many folks view open book as a license to just make the outline like 200 pages long and then just plan to like control F their way through it. Uh, I think when you get a closed book exam assigned, uh, it sort of forces you to discipline your own thinking, streamline things. And you got to remember like everyone else is closed book too. It's not like everyone else is able to look through stuff and you're alone sort of having to, to soldier on. So I, I think that the closed book thing um, is often pretty familiar to you too, because I, I think most exams, at least the ones I had in undergrad, were, were often closed books. So um, I wouldn't worry too much about it. I think if anything, it forces you to, to start a little earlier, make sure you know your stuff. Um, one thing I found very helpful with closed book exams was talking about it a lot with people. Because um, if you all can talk about it without your notes and you can work through stuff just in your head, um, it means you know it the way you'll need to know it when you get into the room. Um, and often the people who assign closed book exams are not like sticklers for case names. And I mean, as a general matter, they're not, they're not using the closed book <laughs> format to catch you up. What they're doing is trying to take away all the stuff they see as extraneous, which is students bringing in like seven commercial outlines and all these things. And, there, and there's all sorts of room between a pure open book exam and a pure closed book exam. Some professors won't let you have uh, anything up on your laptops. They want everything hand and print it out and by hand. And I think they're trying to achieve the same basic thing. They're just saying, I don't want this student relying on the technology or the gamesmanship to do well. I want them to just do well because they know it. Um, so I, I think what you'll see is that like the, the things about exams in law school that seem kind of like arbitrary or strange or different, often what the professor is trying to do is drill down to how do I actually test what they know? Because uh, I think for a lot of faculty, the fear is that students are gaming how to take like a test for you, or this kind of test, or a, a test that has this format, or like you'll hear like racehorse exam type things. And I think um, professors are trying to construct a world where that is minimized as much as possible. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't stress too much about it. And, and like I said, the more you're talking to folks about the material for that class and getting comfortable sort of just recalling it yourself, the easier it'll be when you get into the room. So, yeah. How long were your um, outlines? 
typically? Um, oh, sorry. I would say the shortest was maybe like 25 and the longest was maybe like 50. But it's also like it's pretty contingent on format in the sense that I, um, I would like to sort of build outlines that had the structure that was sort of on the last slide and then um, have things at the end which just sort of were like kind of short. You'll hear like the term attack outlines that are like one to two pagers on important things. Because um, it, it forced me to sort of like have this whole world of notes and books, move down to like a 40 page outline and then move that down even further and like really try to draw out what's essential. Because um, so much of the, so much of success on the exams is actually not, um, it's not the second step in the process which is knowing you're talking about consideration or offer and acceptance and doing it right. It's the first step of even identifying that those are the issues that matter. Um, and the more you can sort of think about the whole class in like a one to two page outline, the more you can kind of see it all at once and you'll be able to kind of go through a checklist. Um, I remember as a 1L I actually made a checklist so that if I, before I started typing on like big issue spotters, I would actually look and be like, all right, make sure you didn't see that, you didn't see that, you didn't see that. Because I was just worried I was going to miss stuff. Um, and you get more confident over time, but I think as a 1L that was actually a helpful exercise because it, it sort of disciplines you to get everything down on one page and sort of go through and make sure you're not um, skipping things that matter. Oh, hi. <laughs> um, I have two questions. Yeah. One is, can you speak a little bit more about what it means to place an issue in its legal context? Yeah. And then the second question is, sort of after you've prepared your outline, you sort of like a lot of issues sort of cross interact. How do you test yourself on sort of like how different issues sort of like, like different rationales, like sometimes you know what I kind of oh, sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think to the first one, putting issues in their context, a good example is, um, I'm going to stay with torts because I just remember it better. Um, a good example is like judge versus jury questions. So you may have not talked about this yet, um, but there's some, there's some things in the law where, you're, where your goal as a plaintiff is to get it to the jury. It's not to show like beyond any doubt that this happened. It's just to say there's enough evidence here that a jury could find that person negligent. There are plenty of other issues in tort that do not that will never go to juries, and your point is to make sort of a pure legal argument. Um, you might not be there in the course yet, but there are plenty of kind of pure questions of law, is what they're often called in torts. Um, one of them is like, did the person owe you a duty not to commit a tort? Um, so when I say place it in context, I mean sort of know within the broader, within the broader torts world of judge and jury, is this the kind of thing that like your burden as a plaintiff is to get it in front of the jury or to prove a legal question to the judge? Um, so that's kind of an example of that is uh, there are these cross-cutting themes in the law and the more you think about how that, that specific issue fits into those themes, it can help you structure your argument because then, then you can say on the exam, this is enough to get to the jury, which is what the professor actually wants as opposed to like, and they are clearly negligent which wouldn't be true because it would be with a jury. You know, so it's like, it's technical things like that. Um, but once you've thought about them more holistically and you've kind of taken those broad themes like judge and jury and, and put it over everything you've done in the course at the end through the outlining process, it sort of becomes more clear. Um, your second question, sorry, was? The second question is after you've sort of placed them, so you've got a giant list of rationales. Yeah. And what's good practice of like looking at a fact pattern and making sure you see how like these sort of like pick out? 
Yeah, I mean, some some of them will just. So if, if you're bringing up the rationales for legal rules in the context of just working off a fact pattern, it'll often be pretty apparent because you'll be doing something like the hand formula and you'll say, okay, the hand formula is about an economic rationale for torts and like, okay. Um, the trickier thing is when you get those questions that ask you to, if, if you had an exam question that was like, explain how economic analysis informs tort law and it was just like a general question, then you'd have to think about, okay, there's an economic rationale for the hand formula, there's an economic rationale for strict liability over here, and an economic rationale for duty over there, and you can sort of connect them in that way. Um, and often going through the kind of exercise of thinking that way can be really helpful, even if that question never comes, because it just forces you to once again consider those cases again, go through them again, think about how they relate, think about them in a new lens, and you, and you find that just the more ways you can, you can organize and group and think about cases, um, the more you sort of know them, even when it is just the, the sort of basics of doing like an issue spotter type question. So I hope that was helpful. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So was the, is the attack outlined mostly like the thing you're just talking about, judge versus jury, and then that thing that you said in the docket, like rules versus whatever, I can't remember right now. But yeah. um, so more like themes like that that are not actually like, well, I, I used the attack outlines more, um, they were less about the theoretical stuff and more about what do I need to make sure I'm seeing. So for, I mean, this is just me, but for me, I, I wanted the attack outline to make sure I wasn't missing some issue in the facts. So I, I didn't want to get into, into a factual situation that involves like, say a doctor violates a statute while driving or whatever, and I do some huge thing on med mal, uh, medical malpractice, but I don't do anything about like violating the statute. You know, I, I wanted to make sure I saw it all in front of me so that I wouldn't just like be in a rush and start typing. Because I, I think the, the biggest problem I had on exams was just starting to type too quickly. This gets a little bit into like the test take, which I don't want to do. But um, I would find that I would get nervous about time, especially in the ones that are like three hours and a lot to do. And I would just like immediately want to be typing. Um, and going through that kind of checklist exercise um, was really helpful in, in not doing that. Um, attack outlines can also be a way to just remember that like, say like you have a contract issue, like an attack outline would just say like formation, offer and acceptance, maybe two things about it, consideration, maybe two things about it. It's just like a really quick way to be like, all right, how do I know a contract was formed? And make sure you're sort of going through all the steps. Um, so I think, it's, I think it's more practical than theoretical in the sense that I think most people use the attack outline just to identify things and to get sort of a flow chart. And then the, the longer outline gets into the more theory okay. kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah, and just going into that general um, organization of an outline, mm -hmm. um, as far as like isolating, so you, obviously you decided to go with negligence. Like mm -hmm. that, was the, that was the big um, concept you went with. Yeah. So, about, so I don't want to get too substantive, but yeah. like as far as how many of those big issues would there be and like as far as ones that would overlap with each other, if, if you know what I'm yeah, yeah. at, like making sure, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I think um, the, the syllabus of the course is often a really helpful starting point. Because, uh, you know, like some torts professors will just teach it as the elements of negligence dominates most of the course. Um, so like the first 12 weeks will be, you know, you'll be talking about duty, breach, causation, damages. And those will be like the four big elements. And you'll want sections that sort of speak to those four things. Um, and they might do other stuff as well. They often do spend a couple of weeks at the end doing different things. But if that's not how your torts professor organizes the material, that means they have a different way of understanding it in mind. And I would just start with their syllabus. 
if you have a good reason for departing from the syllabus, like you think that it just helps you understand it to group A and C together, and you're convinced of this, then do it. Um, but the professors put a lot of time into thinking about how to lay out a course. I remember my, my contract professor started with remedies. So we did like four weeks about like what happens when contracts are breached, and we didn't know what they were or what was going on. But like looking back, it made perfect sense because it helped position contracts as different from torts in a really important way, and we were learning torts at the same time. So it's one of those things where um, there's always like a method to what seems like madness at some points. Um, and if you just sort of follow their structure, it can, be, it can be really helpful. It can at least be a good first point, and then if you want to depart, depart. So assuming that like like we just our section just had around a midterm, so I've like built up to like the midterm point on mm -hmm. a lot of them. So as I'm progressing forward, is it like how often is it useful to update? Because I feel like if you update it too frequently, you're not actually synthesizing. Yeah. So yeah, what like how did you do that? So like I this is just this is an entirely personal answer, so I don't know how most people ha handled that problem. I would do a thing where any time I was going to add a section to my outline, I would read what I already had. Because it forces you to just reread it as many times as you can. So like before I add the stuff from week six, I read the stuff from one through five. And often in the process of doing that, you'll identify a couple points in the one through five stuff where the week six stuff, you should like add a sentence. It doesn't mean like reinvent the wheel and blow it up and double the length, but you'll just see like, oh, this is a lot like that thing we just did. These two things are related. So in the week two part, I'll put like, this is related to that thing that's coming later. You know, something like that. And it just helps you understand that there's different ways of grouping it and organizing it and thinking about it. Um, so that was sort of a rule that I had for myself that, that I think got around that problem. Because I think often people will start outlining so early, but they won't look at that stuff. So like the thing they'll be weakest on by the exam is like the week one through four stuff because they just did it so long ago and never looked at it again. So there really is, um, it helps to be prepared, helps to start early, but there's a way to do that wrong, which is to like ignore the stuff you did in like mid-October. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, how much time do you recommend um, spending on the course itself Yeah, I, I would basically keep things, in terms of like using the cases, I would keep them in the boxes they're given by and large, at least as, a, as an initial matter. Like if you feel really confident and want to and want to use them in a bigger way. Um, but often the bigger themes will be present throughout. So the idea of like in, in contract questions, like should we have clear rules or should we have sort of more subjective standards concerned with fairness? Like they'll be talking about that kind of stuff in a lot of different places in the class. And you, you'll notice it in different places. And often, the, the times when you don't notice that is like the first five or six weeks of law school, because it's also new and crazy. But when you go back to it, it'll make sense what all that was about. Um, so I think you all are at that point in the semester where like um, things still, it's all just, I remember like feeling like it, even before like November, it was all just so new and so weird. And it was like mid-November and then like Thanksgiving break that I was like, oh, this is like, this links up in a broader way. And it, it took a while to get there. So. Um, a lot of the themes won't even be apparent at this point, nor should they be, because it's also unfamiliar. Um, so if you're still in that feeling, like that is totally standard. <laughs> What's the best class you took a UVA? Um, administrative law. That's a very quirky interest of mine, though, so that's kind of unfair. Um, with John C. Harrison.
No, yeah, the themes aren't often like glaring. Like some parts of the law really are just like there's a rule, here's the rule, learn it and do it. I mean, it's not like everything like fits into some grand narrative at the end of the day. Um, but I, what, what I meant by that is like start, you know, organize the sort of tree of the syllabus. Um, like so, like the element of breach might be like something on the syllabus that says like this is the big heading for the next two weeks or whatever, and that at least gives you sort of the rough structure and how you fill that in with different connections between things or the facts that you think are important, that's going to be specific to the class. But I just think it helps as a way to sort of figure out like what's the skeleton of this course even look like. The syllabus can be helpful. Because um, that's also going to be tailored to the way you learned it. So if you, if you, if you get a PA's outline for like CivPro but it wasn't with your CivPro professor, um, that might not be the best way to think about it given that they have different ways of sort of tackling the material. Um, but there is going to be an extent to which like, you know, I, I don't mean to understate that like the outline will have to repeat important rules and important facts in the way that they came in. I, I just think it does more than that. So there definitely will be part of it that does feel like just sort of repetition and that's normal. Um, but I just think that you should try to go beyond that and not just like regurgitate stuff over again. Yeah. Did you include usually in your outlines um, like note cases that the professor may not have like it was in the reading, but they may yeah. not have discussed or may have only made like a very like passing reference to, and it, it didn't seem like something of great importance. Yeah. But did you still make sure to like focus on that in, in your outline? Yeah, it's 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 tough to generalize about because like as you've probably already learned, different casebook authors use the notes very differently. So like some of them basically the notes are where like all the meat of the course is. Um, we used a criminal law textbook by a bunch of folks on the faculty here. So it was like John Jeffries and Richard Bonney. Um, and that, that book, for example, for criminal law, it has main cases, but the notes often provide like a lot of elaboration. So like the main cases will give you like rule A and rule B, and then the notes will be like all this stuff about how like when rule A and B intersect, here's what courts have done, and they'll help you really think about stuff. Um, so I think books like that where the notes add a lot of value there's no reason not to include them because they just help you think. They, they, they give you more examples, more ammo to sort of like work through problems. Some books hardly use notes at all or use them to like point out weird things about the world that the author finds interesting. Um, that can be as useful as you want it to be. I, just, I, I think there are certain books that make a lot more of the notes than others. Uh, and some books hardly have notes at all. I remember like my, my corporation's book was basically just like all main cases. So if you have a book like that, it's not that big a, a stress. But um, you know, so I, I think it's about if you think it's adding value, put it in there. Don't just add it to show off. Like, don't just be like string site of twenty cases for the exam and like isn't that impressive? Because it's just they don't really care. They want you to get it right. They don't want you to just like regurgitate stuff. So um, yeah, I, I, the, uh, of the notes cases, I guess what I would say is look for the ones that help you make sense of the doctrine in the main case. So they, if the main case said, like, if you violate a statute, that's per se breach, whatever. If there were then notes cases that said, like, but if you had a really good reason for violating the statute, or if the statute was repealed, like, if there were just things that helped you work out stuff, it can't hurt to have a sentence on them. But I wouldn't spend the bulk of your time on stuff that wasn't in class. Because the whole point is, like, these folks know what they're doing. 
they cover the stuff they want to cover for a reason, and the things they say in class matter. So even if it seems completely arbitrary why they're doing it, like trust that there is a reason that that's happening. Oh, sorry. Uh, it's kind of a little bit granular, but you said you hand wrote your notes. Do you type up your notes and then edit in an outline, or do you just kind of post straight? I think it's a one L. I did the middle step, then I stopped. But yeah, I, I'm not sure it helped at all, but uh, I just like to type them up because my handwriting's terrible. And I had a bunch of professors who didn't allow laptops, so it was sort of like an inevitable thing, and then I just kept going with it. But yeah, I don't, I don't think there's really a wrong way in that respect. In addition to, I mean, obviously making the outline is doing kind of the meat of the learning and relearning process, but did you do anything else with it once you kind of had your outline in a good place or any supplementary, I don't know, supplementary study techniques? like? Flashcards or anything else you did? I, I found like the flashcard thing helpful. Um, there are just certain courses you'll find, and it's, it's sort of too early to notice. I don't think it's any 1L courses, um, at least for me it wasn't, that like are just really rules driven courses. I mean, like you're, you're basically doing big common law subjects right now, um, for which like analogizing to cases is sort of the name of the game. So if like um, flashcards help you do that, great. I just used it in a much more limited way for like, you know, professional responsibility. It's like you just got to know those rules cold. So I just use flashcards for that kind of thing. Um, but in terms of the outlines, I was basically always working on the outlines. So like I'd finish them, but it was never just like reread it to read it. It was always like reread it with the mind that like I might add a sentence every two pages as I think of something. So they, they were just sort of like always works in progress until the end um, because I think you'll always see ways to sort of like add and flesh out and put some helpful thing in there for you. Um, and, and like I said, the exercise is not designed to give you like something to control F during. It's to sort of like be learning as you're doing it. So if you, if you have an outline done a couple days before the exam and you want to read it like maybe once every two days until or whatever, like you'll probably be making changes throughout and that's totally normal. Like if you're, I think it's actually probably better if you're still touching things up than if it's not, like you don't want to have like a locked product like three weeks before an exam because like what's the point? You just, you know. You then, you then just have to like read the same 50 pages over and over and not think about it. So, yeah. Uh, did you think your PA's recommendation of timing to start working on your outline was good? It was like all six of mine had a different time recommendation. So this, um, which may be your experience with this, and I don't like I said I don't I don't think that's a bad thing. It just means that people can be successful in different ways. Um, there's basically no world where you can prep for a law school exam in the last like 48 hours. I don't think that's like really a thing. Um, people who say they are doing that are basically lying, I think, and actually been thinking about it for a while and then finally like came to the library in the last two days. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I think that there's a lot of room between that and like starting now that can be successful. Um, and, the, and the trick is I, I think whatever, there's this awful thing, everyone just tells you do what works for you and you have no idea yet. Um, but what I, I remember being a 1L and just being like that's not helpful, I don't know what works. Um, <laughs> But um, one thing that I learned is that I felt like I knew a subject when I could explain it to other people. So if I, if I was talking to friends, I could be like, I think this means that, and they could like fight about it, and we could disagree. Like if we could have that conversation, we knew it. If someone told you something and you were just like, sounds good, I have no reaction, like you probably don't know, <laughs> you know? Um, so I, I think, and that, for me, that was never like formal study groups. I wasn't like a study group guy. Um, it was more just like talking to people informally, but um, I probably started my exams like maybe two weeks from now, something like you know late October, then really grind through in like Thanksgiving break and stuff. Um, and one thing too is that like 
the classes start to um, kind of accommodate a little bit. Like, first of all, you get better at learning law school stuff. So you'll look back. I, I remember having this like crazy moment where I looked back to the first reading assignments from the first week. And like the stuff I was underlining was like nonsense. Like it was like not relevant, it was all crazy. And I was like, all right, I'm, I'm at least better than that now. Um, so like the stuff you learn weeks like seven through 10, you will learn faster than the stuff from weeks like one through three. Um, so you'll have more time as you go to do the outlining than you think you do right now. Um, just because you'll get better at learning law school stuff. And also a lot of the classes like have a way of sort of like ramping down in the last week or two. Either they'll do like formal days of review or they'll have a thing where like they save a couple topics that are sort of fun and less dense for the end uh, to kind of accommodate that. So I think um, you shouldn't feel stressed that you have to like start right now. And you also want to make sure if you do start early that you're not neglecting the stuff you did first. Because I think people who start really, really early, they might have that problem that we were talking about where like the stuff they did first was now six weeks ago and they haven't looked at it since then. Um, so if, if you're going to start early, make sure it's kind of cumulative. Um, I would say the norm, just to not like totally evade the question, I would say the norm was like late October, early November. People get a little later each semester they're here, I think. Um, I like to think that's because you like know what you're doing a little more, not just like you're blowing stuff off, but like never know. Thanks. Cool. All right. Thank you all very much.